How can we use the built environment to unlock our potential? What happens when scientists, architects, and public health experts work together? What are movement temptations? And how does planning for a dinner party unlock our creativity? Dina Sorensen will help you answer those questions. Welcome to Design Lab. I'm your host, Bon Koo. On this show, we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? Today's guest is Dina Sorensen, who is an award-winning, nationally recognized education leader, strategist, speaker, and author who designs innovative, healthy, high-performing schools. She is fluent in all aspects of design, educational philosophy, and research and practice. She works across disciplines in order to construct meaningful, memorable connections between people and place. She's trained at the Parsons School of Design in New York City and Paris and at the University of Virginia. Her unique background in the arts, architecture, and interdisciplinary research informs her holistic approach to promoting health, well-being, engagement, joy, and creativity in, in architecture. Dina is passionate about health-promoting design and has pioneered significant contributions to school architecture and public health, resulting in the first-ever health promotion guidelines for school architecture. Prior to founding D-Studio, which is an interdisciplinary studio practice, Dina was an educational design leader at VMDO Architects and the K-12 design leader at DLR Group in Washington, D.C., Dina is known for collaborating with exemplary leaders and entrepreneurs across many disciplines to harness creativity, insight, and innovation to advance an uptick in the adoption of healthier, happier schools by design. If you haven't done so already, sign up for our newsletter. Each week, you will find links to articles and other cool stuff. You can find the newsletter at bit.ly forward slash design lab newsletter or follow us on Twitter at Design Lab Pod. On top of the account, you will find a link to the newsletter. We got a great review on Apple Podcasts from KAL2585. Thank you so much for that. We read all of your reviews. And if you haven't done so already, go on to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Give us five stars. We currently have a five-star rating on both of those platforms. Thank you for everyone who has rated us and left us a comment. Now, here's my conversation with Dina Sorensen. Dina Sorensen, welcome to Design Lab. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. It's an honor, and I can't wait to find out what we're going to dive into. Yeah, well, let's dive into uh, this book called The Great Indoors. It's written by Emily Anthes, and she was actually on episode 15, so about a year ago. And in the book, you're featured in it. So she has this great quote about you. She says, you had long been animated by the idea that architecture in general, and schools in particular, can unlock human potential, foster learning, curiosity, and creativity. That was such a cool quote. And what is the background behind that? Gosh, well, the background, I think, you know, I could answer that in a couple of different ways. But the one that comes to my heart is when you're designing for children or with children, it puts you in this new way of seeing the world or a way that you might have forgotten to see the world, which is a world of infinite potential and possibilities. 
And if you see the world through the child's eyes and the work that you, we do in designing schools, I think it's both humbling and an amazing challenge to use space, use design, use the built environment to unlock that potential for everybody. Children kind of naturally want to explore. They're curious. They build meaning. They make meaning in everything that they do. And that should be something that lives with us for our whole lives, no matter what age. That should really be the power of architecture to unlock that potential in every person. I, lo I love that. So Emily had interviewed you for the, the school that you mm -hmm. had helped design, the Buckingham Primary and Elementary School. Can you describe that project? That was an amazing project. It still is that a team was commissioned to to do it, VMDO Architects, at around in 2009 or so. And that's a project in Dillwyn, Virginia, kind of at the heart of the state of Virginia, right there in the center. And it's a rural community. It's a district with probably five schools, pretty small, but they occupy a really large area of agricultural land and just amazing people, amazing community. And that's really the project that launched this platform that we developed alongside public health researchers and experts like Dr. Trowbridge and Dr. Wong, where we called it Healthy by Design. Hmm. That project really unlocked the potential, not only for better design for kids and communities, but how do we practice architecture by collaborating with experts outside of the field? Yeah. You know, people in medicine, people in public health, cognitive psychologists. How do we bring in experts from the outside to help design become more robust and more intuitive and more people-oriented? Is that pretty unusual for an architecture firm to collaborate with public health experts and physicians and psychologists for a building? It is. I had never been through that myself. Obviously, that was the first experience I had working with experts from different fields and different disciplines. And it, it felt like a natural fit. It felt right to my sensibility because architects are super skilled at working with engineers and sustainability experts and structural engineers and people from, you know, all different areas of expertise to put a building together. And so why not if we're building buildings for people, why not work with scientists who focus on people? They have knowledge we need to know that we don't get to pursue every day in our architectural practices. And so it just felt like a natural fit to bring more people in to the mix, especially around designing for better health and better learning within the context of children, adolescents, youth, young people. Totally makes sense. And Emily talked about how you had translated scientific evidence into actual design features of the school. Yes. What are some examples of that? Oh my gosh. So I'll try to weave a few little strands together here. One is what I mentioned earlier about designing with and for children, which requires this a kind of deep empathetic approach to the end user. In this case, it's not just the teachers, it's the children themselves and almost anticipating what children do naturally. Mm. And so 
and kids get great design. I mean, anybody with kids or if you watch kids, they just adopt really intuitively great design, even if it's not intended for them. They're going to want to touch it, climb on it, swing on it, interact with it, make meaning out of it. And so we were already thinking along those lines how to create a school that's really designed for the kinetic qualities of kids, mm -hmm. what's going to spark their curiosity, what anticipates them and their creativity. But on the health side, when the health promotion piece came in, it was like, oh, okay, this is something we can actually measure. We can evaluate it. We can evaluate uh, how successful this building is for kids on behalf of an uptick in their physical activity. Will it promote movement and the ways that we anticipated? How do we bring in new types of furniture, new types of design to really promote that high quality movement all through the day instead of just running out to recess or having time mm -hmm. in the gym? So from the public health side, bringing in that research brought in a challenge to like, how do we create space out of these strategies? How do we create, take that pamphlet on, you know, good public health interventions and turn it into a setting for kids or a new type of dining space? How do we spatialize it, essentially? And the way that the kind of breakthrough thinking with that at that moment was how do we take a space like the old school cafeteria and start to build one, one of my <laughs> least favorite spaces in schools. Well, I think schools in general yeah. are so ugly. Most schools I know, I know, K so institutional. Schools, and the cafeteria is one of the worst places in those schools. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, I think Matt mentioned school lunch and then studying school cafeterias for a while to do this work. I think what really helped us concentrate to get back to your original question, how do we take research from other fields like public health and those kind of strategies and interventions and put it into architecture? And the way we did that was to stitch it back to theories coming out of behavioral economics. So nudging, anticipating that good design promotes healthy choices, especially for kids. Bad design usually is disrupts the kind of the flow of action or action-biased spaces. So we looked a lot at nudging techniques, strategies, smart lunchroom strategies, making the healthy choice the easy choice for kids, and really what, thinking what's, through... What's an example of that in the cafeteria that you had yeah. designed? Well, one example is the kind of branding and messaging environment, the kind of visual messaging environment. So... Traditionally, kids might go into a cafeteria and they'll see maybe a poster that's produced by the federal government. If you look at the design of that poster, it's rarely tuned to be an age-appropriate type of communication, right? So no one's looking at it. It has mm -hmm. no impact or effect. In contrast, the marketing of beverages to kids is like a multi-billion dollar industry where they use cartoons and flashy stuff and it's all designed to get kids attention <laughs> but for the wrong yeah. reasons uh -huh. and so we just took that one idea of how do we design the visual environment everything from the signage to the touch points to walking through the lunch line what do you see first what can your hand reach what within the visual environment 
was communicating to kids that health, their health matters and that they, as agents of their health, can make a healthy choice. So signage, the way the food is laid out, what comes first, second, third in the lunch line, putting maybe less nutritious beverage options at a further reach Mm. from the child's hand. All kinds of little smart tricks to help balance the equation of healthy choice versus being rushed and not feeling like, you know, you can make a choice at all. So reducing the barriers for that kid to go for that piece of broccoli or for that apple. Yeah. And one way there's a lot of great research on small things like a child is more likely to try fresh fruits and vegetables if they're cut up into small pieces. Mm. And so working with the food service is, experts. Is that why you go to the supermarket <laughs> uh, and yes. then they're like Lunchables. in these packages and Pretty stuff like much. That? Yes, that's uh. what I mean. So if you look at, you know, what's branded for kids on the unhealthy spectrum, they use all the strategies, all the techniques, right, to get parents and kids to buy the stuff that isn't good for them. And we just took all those ideas and put it in the health domain. And we're uh, like, yeah, we're going to chop uh, up the broccoli. We're going to pick the grapes off the vine. We're going to create orange wedges and little bits of apples. And the food service experts took it on, which is very rare because it's an extra laborious step. Yeah. So everything down to, yeah, what a kid can touch, grab, taste, just make it easy, make it what they love to do and make it natural. I love that. Another kind of now known strategy to promote more physical activity in the environment is the use of stairs mm-hmm. and where you locate those stairs, how they interact with the end user, how easy they are to access and use every day. We also applied those strategies in Buckingham. And so The way to do that is obviously to make the environment with features that are super appealing, like stairs. It's not a barrier anymore. It's something that you can't wait to to use every day. Is that what you call the movement temptations? Yes. Yeah. And you kind of tuck the elevator at a distance that and within visual field that isn't as tempting to use the elevator for convenience. And so the stair is one of those beautiful features at Buckingham that Again, if you're there every day hanging out like I was, you see kids use it as a playground. So it's not just, again, not just the use that adults perceive it as. It's how do kids perceive these features? What do they imagine? And how are they going to adopt it and use it for play? Which they do. That's like elevating the staircase. And I like to take the stairs wherever I go, but sometimes the staircases are the ugliest design features of a building like they're always like tucked away in some dark corner and i take the stairs a lot and it is an afterthought in the design but i've seen pictures of the staircase at the school that you design and it's beautiful it's an elevated part of the design of the school i love that stair because it really gets at the heart of what i think architecture can really do in society and for humans, which is really strengthen our connection to life. So we're sentient beings. Our Mm. our greatest joy is that feeling of being connected. And that stair is surrounded by nature and natural light. You can see 
I don't know, over 280 degrees as you're going up and around. And it's just this beautiful, small feature that creates this entire notion of being a part of a community and being in nature and being able to thrive, really. And something that simple can really make a huge difference in the lives of kids. Why are schools in the U.S. so poorly designed? So many of them, they look like prisons when I, when I go past them. And they're some of the most important places that we have in our society. Yes, it's true. There's some, um, gosh, there's a lot of history here. But yeah, I think we all live in cities and communities where we can drive by a school that might have been designed in the 30s or 40s. It might have had, held a prominent spot on a street and it's really operating like a real civic place. And those might have become libraries by now. Most, most of those older buildings that were designed around a civic presence have long gone. But I think generally the way schools are organized are remnants of a 20th century period of relative stability when we had a lot of factories humming. We could make a lot of assumptions that efficiency was scalable. So the more and more kids that came into the public school system, the larger those schools became and the more efficiently they were designed. And it's all of those ideas are really about how to reduce costs mm -hmm. as quickly as possible by pro producing the most of something. So that kind of factory efficiency model. And that whole 20th century infrastructure that has really been a driver of a lot of organizational architectures based on this kind of environment, you know, efficiency, what you produce is relatively stable. You can produce a lot of it because we can predict people are going to want to consume it. All of that stuff is like based on predictable patterns, hierarchy, control, and organizational structures that lead to routines and very and less variance in routines. And we are so not there anymore. Hmm. So the tw <laughs> the twenty first century is a completely different environment. It's it's dynamic. It's ever-changing, it's emergent. We're not living in that old, relative, relatively stable world anymore, but we still build schools that way. Mm -hmm. It's like we really haven't caught up with where and who students are today and how they need to learn differently yeah. to actually thrive in the world as it is today with less predictability, much higher turnaround in terms of emergence. I think you can look at innovation at a rate of every 18 months, there's something incredibly innovative out there that kids are using, right? So it's just an amazing hangover or leftover mm. from this institutional era that was really just based on the way factories could run at a really efficient pace and at mm. a low cost. There's some parallels to my conversation with Michael Murphy, who does hospital design, and we had talked about industrialized healthcare, and it seems that there's a similar theme of industrialized ed education. Mm -hmm. Schools like hospitals were designed for the last century, caught up. And I was curious to know, were you always, in, like, how did you get into the, this type of work? Are you rebelling from the bad schools uh, that you went to growing up? How did you become an expert on the design of schools? Well, I, I 
kind of fell into it. So my background at Parsons School of Design was in painting. And I also did a lot of uh, art criticism and theory and just, you know, lived in that kind of the world of aesthetics. And I think what I missed after Parsons and spending over a decade kind of immersed in that field was that it was a singular medium, whereas architecture is a multidimensional medium. And I always loved the concepts of space, whether in, in two dimensions and painting, it just never satisfied me. Mm-hmm. So fast forward, I got my master's in architecture at the University of Virginia and kind of took all of those early beginnings and foundational skills that I had coming out of Parsons and applied it to architecture. That being really a colorist, so I have a do a lot of color work, materials, just that whole idea of an aesthetic relationship to the environments that we create and inhabit. And then after school, I got a job at VMDO Architects. It's an amazing firm. They've been around for I think 40 years now, Mm. a little over 40 years, always doing educational work. And so I worked on projects in higher ed. I got into the K-12 market and I just really found my passion and everything that my life had added up to just was a great fit. I love working with the clients. I love, obviously, I love the idea of designing for kids and with kids and just find the challenges in that in designing schools to be something that is a passion and the friendships that are built as a result of these you know relationships with clients are are really amazing yeah and the first school that i worked on was really a huge eye opener because i didn't really know the parts and pieces of a school. I mean, obviously you can look at a school and say there are classrooms and this and that, but the parts and pieces of the way schools are arranged are so disconnected from the actual relationships and the interactions that are happening there. Mm. And so I just started focusing more and more on the dynamics of the relationships and less on the architecture and kind of honing in on the people, thinking more about how people can strengthen their relationships to each other and to make that social connection stronger. And then architecture was kind of the afterthought in terms Mm. of how to enhance it. And so if you put people in boxes, they're not conducive to the kinds of relationships and interactions that we're asking kids to have these days Mm. and to be creative and uh, to explore their world. So that was a long-winded way of it's not answering the question. <laughs> no, that's that, that is great because I was curious to know you studied painting in in college yeah. <laughs> and then it jumped to architecture and K to twelve schools. I had just learned that you have started your own studio called the D Studio. Mm-hmm. Tell us about uh, that and and what your thoughts are on designing the future of schools. Oh, so D-Studio is really happy, scrappy startup. That's where I am with it. And over the course of your lifetime, I don't know, you might make a couple of leaps that where you leap off, off a cliff and you're like, I don't know where I'm going to land, but here I go. And that's what D-Studio is for me. 
It's an opportunity to remain really flexible and nimble in the industry that I am in. So I like to think of myself as an artist practicing as an architect. And then I have this love and passion for collaborating with people from all over the world. And really depending on the problem somebody's trying to solve, I want to be able to put a team together, the best team in the world to tackle that problem. And so it gives me that flexibility to really hone in on a problem, work with clients to solve that in the most creative and innovative way possible. And I'm really excited about putting that together kind of from the bottom up and working with people at the very early beginning, because that's really when a lot of magic happens. You're innovative, you're trying to put stuff together, you have to be um, super creative and in the ways that you tackle things. And I'm just really enjoying that kind of early beginning and launching a studio. That's so exciting. I love how you said you're an artist practicing as an architect, because I like to think of myself sometimes as an artist practicing as a doctor. So there's some similarities there. And absolutely. One similarity is your creativity is important. And you had mentioned this. So how is creativity important to your practice? And what are some ways that we can unlock our creativity, no matter what sort of field that we're in, whether it's medicine or architecture. Yeah, I think one one kind of trick, and I think it does take a a lot more trickiness as we get older, is I just try to foster what I would call like a really great dinner party. So when you host a dinner party, you're like stoked to come up with a menu. What are you going to pair with this, that, the other? You're always imagining your guests like thriving, you know, around the table and like everything seamlessly happening to produce the most joyful of interactions. I think of that in this project work or in this type of collaboration. And so I anticipate where in in a creative process, people might get stuck or they might slow themselves down or they might not feel confident. And so I think and anticipate about what can I create, what kind of experience can I provide to really get people to feel safe, like they can trust this environment. Just like a dinner party, you go there, you anticipate great food and wine, you have a great time. In a design process, I want everyone to come to the table, feel like they're going to have a great time, get something really meaningful out of it, and at the end of the day, create something themselves. Mm. And so it's this kind of attitude about a process that's really important to think through when you're bringing in people who don't perceive themselves as designers. And then just, I think that sense of safety is really critical just to get off the ground, to start launching. You know, I find myself repeating a few things quite often, which is, it's okay to not have an answer right now. (laughs) And every time you think of how to solve it, think of, three different ways that you can break it at the beginning. And so just really encouraging people to suspend their need to solve things quickly and to really enjoy the process of exploring and failing faster and trying things out and remixing things. And you have to be a little messy at the beginning, but it all pays off. And with the metaphor of a great dinner party, you still have to clean the dishes at the end. (laughs) (laughs) And for a lot of people, safety has to be a prerequisite for creativity. 
especially if you are trying to think outside of the box and because sometimes we get punished for doing that. Yeah, I think it starts in childhood, like through our education system, we're trained to really come up with one singular right answer. And it's just, a it's so hard to break free from that and the yeah. conditioning that goes with it and the social environment that supports it. And so the more we can, you know, just say, you know, creativity is a little messy. It's wicked fun. You're going to have a great time. And at the end of the day, ideas don't cost anything. Building bad things cost a lot. So I always say take as long as you need in the research phase and experimentation phase because that's where you want to spend time so you don't have to spend more time and money later to kind of retroactively fix something, so to speak. And so, yeah, I think we can all help each other just kind of loosen up, feel what it's like to be a kid again, see a hundred possibilities for every single problem we have. And I think the world can definitely take a turn for the better when we start to become more creative and help each other do that type of work. And creativity just helps us be curious and may establish like new linkages because you as an architect had reached out to public health experts and physicians when designing schools. And that's, that doesn't happen normally. And it's a very creative act to be able to do that. Yeah. I think that in some of the stories about, you know, people working with me, a lot of people are like, where is this headed? Because I am one of those people that absolutely love just divergent thinking. I really thrive in that space. I hold it as long as I can before kind of synthesizing, which eventually comes around. But I think that space of divergent thinking, exploration, linked, linking things, it's, it's really rich with possibility. And that's really where innovation is lurking. It's where people have ideas that may not have had the right environment to come out yet. It's just a really rich, amazing space. And if you watch kids playing, they're always in that space. Yeah. Um, and I think there's so much serious play that adults can start to nurture that will help a lot of individuals and communities start to come back to kind of who they are at heart, which is our communities, you know, driven to be a culture of health. Before we started our conversation, you had mentioned that you were a pretty avid cyclist. And mm -hmm. I was curious to know how sports influence the way that you think about architecture and urban planning. Yes, I love the realization that sports has been one of those foundational um, inspirations for me, but it has also probably shaped a lot of how I think and approach the different challenges in life. And so in sports, it's a combination of commitment, rigor, focus, and repetition. Um, and in most sports, if you're competing at a high level, um, it's hours and hours and hours of practice and trying things and trying them over again. And I think that idea of iterative process is actually at the heart of any kind of sport that you want to pursue. And so when I translate all those years uh, spent in cycling to the design world, again, that sense of rigor, iteration, 
process to work toward perfection makes so much sense to me Mm. that it doesn't, things don't happen overnight, especially really, you know, excellent things take a lot of time and handholding and process and patience. And I think that's like a direct metaphor from sports and some of the things that I've done in sports and also just competing. So you enter a race, you may not finish the way you anticipated or trained for, and you go back and you ask why. And I think mm. that feedback loop is super critical in everything in the design world. And I know, I mean, this relates a little bit to me, but one of my favorite industrial designers, Dieter Rams, said design is first a thinking approach. Mm. And so how you think about something is the first act of design. And so I think when you're pursuing a sport, And all that time that you have to reflect on performance and how you can improve directly relates to design and architecture and that idea of iterative operations and creativity. And we're talking before about how can we get people to start thinking more about their environment and ask themselves this question, how can this be healthier? Because you and I think like that all the time. Mm -hmm. I'm walking down the street. Or I'm driving my car and I ask myself, this is so poorly designed and I wish this could be better. Um, What are some ways that we can get people who don't have this mindset to start thinking more about that? That would be such an awesome kind of revolution, I think, to have everybody thinking along the lines of health. Because for the most part, I think people think about it when there's a crisis in health, whether it's at a, at a societal level or individual level. It's yeah. like, oh, yeah, health is really important. Like right now, during the pandemic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But if we think of it proactively and think about the environment as offering us a bias toward a certain type of action or non-action, so a sedentary environment, an environment that keeps you at low levels of activity or not able to walk on a street or unable to cross a road or these are like big barriers to very simple things and i think when you run up against these barriers there's a real pause but i don't think the question is how can this be healthier i think the question is who could be so stupid to design it this way <laughs> <laughs> so it's. I think the health promotion piece is how to promote something versus how to prevent something. And for the most part, I think we're trained to look at the environment as a way to prevent falling, a way to prevent these negative effects. But more and more, it's like, yeah, how can we make it healthier to promote more connectivity, to promote social cohesion, to promote kids? Oh my gosh, to move around freely and do the things they love to do in the outdoors, you know? Yeah. More parks, more pocket parks, more places for people to be together outside and get there safely. I think all of these can make a huge difference in in just thinking, yeah, how can that be healthier? My final question to you, I'm going to go back to this uh, question of the future of schools. It's interesting that you mentioned that a school of the future was actually built in the last century. It's called the Crow Island School. Can you talk about some of the design principles that were employed in that school and why 
it still is relevant to us today? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a beloved school. I think people around the world who know about school design look to this project as a as a emblem of great design. It was designed by Aero and Eliel Saarinen in 1939. And the educational programming was by then Larry Perkins. It was kind of the early Perkins and Will group. And what I love about it is, and why it's still relevant today, is because it crystallizes ideas and education through architecture. And those ideas are about childhood and what it means to grow up and to thrive as a child. And so it really prioritizes design through the eyes of a child. And the teacher is really a facilitator and a coach of that child's natural passion for learning. And plus, it's a a really beautiful piece of early modern architecture. And so it's There's a lot of wood. It has all these warm, beautiful materials, very natural, humanistic design. The classrooms have two windows of full glass that look out to the woods. And so you have natural daylight. You have a very beautiful natural corner that makes you feel like you're outside. The indoors and outdoors are are really uh, stitched together in a way that kids can freely go in and out. And when you're in the classroom, it feels like you're in the woods. Just really thoughtful, connected, and predicated on progressive education values, which really says the child is an individual that is a member of a group. That's the definition of school. Well, thank you, Dina Sorensen, for joining us on Design Lab. I'm a huge fan. Congrats on your new studio. And thank you for designing better schools for our children. Thank you. Thank you, Bon. Thanks for having me. You can find Dina Sorensen on Twitter. Her handle is at D-M-I-R-I-S-2. Sign up for our newsletter. Reach out to me on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. On Twitter, I can found at B-O-N-K-U. On Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Design Lab was produced by Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.